This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. As President Obama has left office, the belief by many that his signature legislation, the Affordable Care Act, was going to be the only thing that linked him to history uh, may have been a, a little bit off. People sometimes forget that one of the other important pieces to Obama's terms in office, not necessarily directly linked to him, was Dodd-Frank, otherwise known as the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. And that is a bill which could look a little bit different in the future, depending on the efforts of the President Trump White House. But it does bring forth the question of what impact will there be on that bill, as well as other pieces linked to the financial sector. Wharton's Peter Conti Brown joins us with more on this. Peter, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. Great to see you again. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so what do you think is going to potentially happen with, with Dodd-Frank? So, you know, the candidate Trump and many of the other Republican candidates for president campaigned on the idea that the twin legislative evils of the Obama administration were indeed the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare and Dodd-Frank. And so the rhetoric around the campaign was to repeal them, gut them. Uh, if you recall, candidate uh, Romney uh, in one of the presidential debates in 2012 said the same thing. You know, that Dodd-Frank, he said, was the biggest, wettest kiss to Wall Street he'd ever seen. So the enthusiasm, at least among the Republican base and those, uh, uh, if we can um, uh, erroneously convert the electorate to a single issue, would be ostensibly behind repeal. Yep. Well, not so fast, I'd say, in, uh, in the piece that, uh, that I published with uh, Wharton's public uh, policy initiative, is to say that the, the politics around financial reform are complicated along two dimensions. Dimension number one is, is around ideas. There are members of the Republican coalition for whom uh, Dodd-Frank does represent a kind of intellectual problem right. uh, in the sense that they don't like the idea of uh, the bureaucracies that Dodd-Frank created. They don't like the idea of regulators being in charge of, uh, of dissolving uh, uh, the very large banks in case of distress. Uh, and a lot, they don't like the idea of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, for a lot of other Republicans, though, they just didn't like the idea of being out of power. And this isn't a partisan jab at the Republicans. This, this is true of any political coalition. You have we might call true believers and you, might, and you have strategists. The true believers have identified one issue, be it abortion, financial reform, whatever, uh, and said, OK, this is the way we want to change it. Right. And the strategists say, well, we don't have an opinion about this particular policy issue. We just want to do what's going to be uh, politically most advantageous. We want to sure. to recapture power. Which is why, why, to a degree, we're seeing this kind of push through through of the Repub new Republican uh, plan for, for health care in this country. Very, very similar dynamic. Uh, I think a little simpler in health care, but very similar, which is you've got people who really hate uh, Obamacare. But you've got Republicans in the House and in the Senate we're suddenly thinking, wait a second, uh, not so sure about this. So the the path for passage of this uh, Republican alternative to Obamacare is is far from certain. It's more complicated in the financial reform area because the coalition is more diverse. Uh, the Trump coalition around financial reform is is more diverse and includes voices that are incompatible with one another. Right. And the biggest challenge for the Republicans now is going to be looking anew at executive power power of the president, which they've been resisting during the Obama years. And now, well, 
their guy is the one in office. So Which how is, is that going to change? And that's something you talk about in in this in this research that you did for the Public Policy Institute is the fact that the Republicans basically set into play a, a choice act, as you refer to it, uh, that basically was ready to go assuming Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency and be in office so that they could kind of control her abilities when she got into office. Obviously, that wasn't the case. Exactly. I think the Republican planning around the Choice Act is the piece of legislation that's been proposed. It's being revised. Uh, We're told that there's going to be a new version out that uh, uh, reflects the reality of the Trump administration. But along with with most other people, um, in September 2016, when the Choice Act was... Uh, was proposed. Uh, Republicans thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Sure. Uh, this is the time when Paul Ryan is saying, yeah, I'm not going to defend Donald Trump. I'm not going to campaign for him anymore. I'm just going to be about the maintaining the House majority. Disinvited him from that event in, at, in Wisconsin. Uh, those were That was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> a, wor- a world away yes, from where we are today. And it's a world away for financial reform because now the challenge is going to be which of the critiques that the Republicans were making during the Obama administration were about ideas and which were about strategy? Again, I really want to emphasize that uh, this is not uh, a question of Republican hypocrisy. Right. It's not a question uh, of partisan nonsense. It's a question of partisan politics. And, uh, and we're already seeing some, some slippage in uh, exactly along these lines. For example, Republicans have hated the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as long as there's been a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Right. And their critiques are twofold. They don't like what it does, but they also don't like how it's structured. And one of the aspects of its structure is that it's a single director as opposed to a commission, a bipartisan commission with three members uh, from the president's party, two from the minority party. Right. And so they sought that change. The Choice Act seeks that change. They've already walked that back. They've already said, you know what, we're comfortable with the single director model. What changed? Well, now their guy gets to choose who the single director is. Sure, yeah. A bipartisan commission panel makes the commission more accountable, not to the political process, but to the parties themselves. And that's something that when you're in a a minority party, you like. You like having an official voice in policymaking. Sure. A single director model uh, deprives the minority party of that voice. So a Republican Party in the minority wanted it. The Republican Party now in the majority at the president in the White House uh, is no longer interested. That's the kind of dynamic I'm talking well, about. Well, the the CFPB is is the is the one agency which obviously a lot of people talked about that that you know could be quite quite impacted by the the fact that Donald Trump was going to be in the White House. When when you look at it now, uh, and kind of that change of philosophy on the sing, single director uh, belief. What is kind of the future, do you see, for the CFPB? I think it's more certain than it seemed in uh, um, uh, in the fall. And here's what I mean by that. So the original Choice Act, the one that's still pending, uh, that will be changed, basically abolishes the CFPB. It replaces what, what's called the Consumer Financial Opportunity Commission. Okay. It's got a dual mandate to protect consumers, but also to ensure uh, uh, financial opportunity. Uh, by keeping in mind the safety and soundness of banks, making sure all the regulations it passes are cost beneficial to the banks and the consumers alike. Uh, it takes away a lot of the subpoena power. It makes it so that payday lenders are no longer going to be regulated in the same way. It changes basically everything about the CFPB. Sure. It would create a, a a massive political football with no real orientation. Um, 
I, I I think that a lot of those changes are still going to be a part of the the new legislative proposal. Yeah. Um, but fewer. And part of this is too is also the politics around consumer financial protection are not as easy as the politics around healthcare. Nobody likes to, if you have healthcare already, and Obamacare changed it, and you didn't like the change, then you're a constituency for its abolition. Sure. Yeah. If you are someone who is uh, ripped off by banks. You were not a constituency to see the agency in charge of policing bad bank activity right. change. If you're someone who's not ripped off by banks, you're, but you're still a bank customer, right. you're not an obvious constituency to see the regulator in charge of policing banks. Uh, you're not a constituency for its repeal. The politics are going to be hard, and you can bet that Democrats will be delighted to have that debate. And in the wake of Wells Fargo, there's <laughs> there's a constituency right there, alone of a couple million people. One of the sad ironies is that uh, if you go to uh, Speaker Ryan, Paul Ryan's Twitter feed, he had a tweet that came about 15 minutes before the news broke on Wells Fargo calling for the abolition of the CFPB because the CFPB was interfering with banks' ability to do business 15 minutes later. Timing's amazing. Timing is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> it's, it's roughly along those lines. People should check that uh, for me. Right. It was definitely within very close proximity, and it looks pretty embarrassing. That's exactly the political dynamic I'm talking about. Well, I mean, I, I find it interesting, and in, in just having you know seen how the, the banking crisis played out and, and where we've come from then, uh, the need to have some sort of overseer uh, of the banking industry, and obviously with Wells Fargo just happening, it's still a very necessary component to what we need to have in government somehow, some way. I, I agree with you. Uh, and a lot of Americans agree with you. The CFPB is, uh, depending on how the question is pitched in these, in these polls, the CFPB is broadly popular. Um, a lot of Republicans uh, in in the coalition do not agree. And their best version of their argument goes something like this. More regulation is crippling banks if the regulation is unnecessary. Right. Basically, they're not saying that people should be uh, – that fraud should be allowed to be committed by these institutions. They're saying that the regulations the CFPB is offering have nothing to do with fraud. Um, and so there's a good uh, evidence-based debate to be had – uh, I'm, I'm more persuaded by the idea that the CFPB is up to good work as opposed to bad work. But what the Choice Act would do uh, and what other bank lobbyists have proposed would do is essentially abolish or, in fact, abolish it. There's been you know, some lob- a lobbyist for the American Bankers Association said, just get rid of the whole thing. It doesn't work. You also talk in, the, in this article about uh, the impact that we may see occur with the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. and not necessarily the actual running of the Federal Reserve, but kind of the monitoring uh, of the Federal Reserve. Right. This is another great example here of uh, presidential politics complicating what the Republican coalition will seek. So for, for uh, years during the Obama administration, Republicans were very clear they thought that the Fed – was too, to use the metaphors of central banking, too dovish, meaning they were too anchored on the idea of protecting the Fed's unemployment mandate as opposed to inflation. Right. By keeping interest rates so low, by pursuing policies of quantitative easing, they were just building up inflationary pressures, and that was bad. And so what they wanted to do is change the way the Fed does business by making them bound to a more hawkish rule, a rule that would cause interest rates to go up. Uh, more earlier. Uh, And that rule or version of that package was passed in September 2016. But think about what the implications are here. The president, and this is not just President Trump, certainly applies to him, but any president, wants to see a central bank accommodate his fiscal policy. Sure, yeah. Right? That's just just presidential politics 101. Yep. 
Um, and we've, in our history, we see just so many examples in virtually every presidency uh, of a president uh, uh, angling in that direction. The exception is Barack Obama, but uh, he shouldn't get high marks for this because he didn't have to. Right. Uh, the Fed interest rates were as low uh, as, as he referred near his entire presidency. So, but now a Republican is president. And monetary policymaking by rule, being more hawkish, is going to be antithetical to the president's interests. So what will the president do? What will the Republicans do? Now that yeah. the president is uh, one of their own, are they going to be more dovish? My, my, my bet as a historian is, yes, they are going to abandon this effort because the Republican will not want to see uh, the Federal Reserve uh, pushed in a direction that's going to be uh, more uncomfortable for pursuing the kinds of fiscal policies that the Trump administration has already announced. So does that explain a little bit kind of the back and forth we saw in the campaign trail uh, of President Trump and his comments about Janet Yellen and, and, and kind of the path of the Federal Reserve as he saw it, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in, in the time that President Obama was in office? Right. The back and forth you're talking about is that uh, Donald Trump, I think to his credit, and, you know, on a stage of, uh, I think at the time, there were 15, because a couple had dropped out, uh, Republican candidates for president. He was just like, you know what? I like Janet Yellen. Yeah. Uh, I like, I'm, I'm a developer. I like low interest rates. Again, that was not in lockstep with the Republican position at the time, which sure. was that interest rates were way too low. As he became the Republican nominee, however, not just a candidate, he changed his tune. He said that Janet Yellen was acting too politically by keeping interest rates low and was trying to make it so that Hillary Clinton would be elected. Now, Hillary Clinton was not elected, uh, as everyone knows. And so now the question is, where is Donald Trump going to be? It's not even clear that he knows. Uh, rather infamously, he called uh, his former national security uh, advisor, Michael Flynn, and said, hey, is it, a, is it a strong dollar or a weak dollar that we like? And Flynn, no yeah. economist, was like, I have no idea. You need to consult an economist. So you, bring, you bring up this idea of, of kind of an audit that, that the Federal Reserve would, would kind of be beholden to, mm -hmm. to Congress, just more of a, a policy audit than it would be an actual physical audit. This is one of the, this is a perennial issue. It goes back to the 1920s. Um, for most of the Fed's history, it was something Democrats pushed, not Republicans. Right. Since the crisis, it's been a Republican idea, and that's to audit the Fed. To be very clear, it's not a an accounting audit. Sure, the Fed yep. is already audited yep. uh, by accountants. It is a political audit, and it's an audit to make sure uh, I think the best version of this argument is just to provide more transparency to ensure that the Fed is doing um, uh, policy the way that members of Congress want it to be done. Um, and there are aspects of a Fed audit in the Choice Act around changing the way that the Fed does its, uh, its policymaking. I'm broadly opposed to this. Uh, in my book about Fed independence, I think that we do need more transparency and accountability. But at the level of governance, making sure that we're clear on exactly who is sitting in those big chairs pulling those big levers of power. Okay. It's not good to have the partisan political process uh, injected deeply into the day-to-day -day of the central bank. Right. And that's what the audit, the Fed, and its related proposals, including monetary policy by rule, uh, by legislative mandate, that's what this does. It puts uh, Congress through the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, into uh, a backseat driver as a central bank. Because right now you you basically have Janet Yellen speaking to Congress, what, once a quarter? Once a, it's twice a year. Twice a year at this point, which is that level of accountability at this point, mm -hmm. speaking before the Congressional Committee, they would like it to, to go another step or another couple of steps yeah, in that process. They would, and they would like to have those. What, what they would say is the Fed has a, an army of researchers. Congress does not. 
And so they're saying that uh, for the Fed, we should even the playing field by putting the GAO in the position of giving the Congress more ammunition to second guess the Fed. Um, And again, some people would say like, well, what could possibly be wrong with more transparency? Well, here's the problem. Uh, in representative democracies, we recognize that not all of us have expertise on all issues. Sure. Yeah. So we design the government to delegate expertise to different agencies. Now, expertise is not pure. Ideology is going to uh, affect every human who's sitting in any one of these policy chairs. So the question is striking the right balance between democratic accountability and letting experts do their jobs. You don't want experts to run away with the whole thing. You need to have some sort of democratic, non-expert accountability. Right. Uh, I think that the balance isn't quite right at the Fed. I think there are too many uh, unaccountable uh, central bankers uh, uh, in charge of, of policy. But again, I would change the way that those central bankers are appointed. I wouldn't put Congress in the position of, uh, of second-guessing monetary policy decisions on a, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I guess the interesting piece to this, to a degree, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we have always, well, I shouldn't say always, but if, it feels like always, we have seen Congress, for the most part, when they have a president in the office, same party, in step with, you know, the plan kind of lays out ABC. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily have that right now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because of... They, obviously, with the Affordable Care Act and and this this new plan, mm. there's already some back and forth about what the plan is, and and within Republicans in, in Congress as well. So we do have a little bit of tension there between what Congress may see and, and what the White House may see. Yeah, I, I just that's absolutely the case. There's a myth uh, in the United States that we have a two party system, right? And that myth goes something like this: Democrats or Republicans, they tend to take turns between who gets to control the uh, levers of power. Um, but it's a two-party system. There's no room for third parties. The reason that's a myth is because each party represents a very unruly coalition. And at times, one party can impose better discipline than another. Right. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that these are – it's still coalitional politics. And different wings of either party are going to want different things. Uh, again, with healthcare, there is that diversity. But it doesn't, doesn't compare to the diversity of views within the Republican coalition on financial reform. So the election matters enormously, but not because Republicans are moving in a single direction. It matters now because they're going to have to have a debate within themselves uh, in Congress and with the president just on the Republican side about what their goals are. And you can bet that the opposition party is going to try to exploit those differences for both uh, intellectual and strategic gain. Peter Connie Brown joining us here in studio, uh, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. We're talking about the uh, research and work that he did uh, looking at uh, regulatory reform. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I, I guess then, going back to Dodd-Frank for a second, there's already been some some talk about the fact that that idea of a full pullout of, of what Dodd-Frank was may not be the path that is is best to follow. Uh, and again, there could be even some some fighting back and forth on, on Dodd-Frank going forward. Uh, unquestionably. I mean, you've got to think about financial policy as being a three-legged stool. On the one hand, there's legislation. That's Dodd-Frank. And yeah. any repeal of Dodd-Frank would also be legislation. That's cumbersome. It's unpredictable. Yeah. There's a reason why the metaphor of uh, it would take an act of Congress to you know, decide where your mother-in-law wants to go to dinner. It's because it's a huge, big, you know, cumbersome yeah. process. Yeah. Uh, uh, actual acts of Congress uh, absolutely fit that bill. Second leg is in regulation. And there we're already seeing some movement. It's much less cumbersome. Still can be time-consuming. But that's going to be about the regulators like the Federal Reserve or the CFPB changing their rules. 
Some of those rules can change very quickly. Some of them have to take longer. Uh, but it's much, much faster than legislation. The third leg is supervision. And that's about the individual relationships that regulated firms have with their, with their regulator through the supervisory arm. And that's a place where personnel is policy. President Trump has been moving uh, with a, a very deliberate speed, we'll say, very slowly in staffing these agencies. There yeah. are a huge number of vacancies, including at the Fed, um, and uh, they haven't been filled. As they are filled, as, as personnel are selected, then the policy of supervision uh, and then to a lesser extent regulation will change, uh, will, will change on a dime. So we'll see very quick movement on that. But the Dodd-Frank process, we're in for a long slog. That's Nothing's going to happen quickly. I don't think anything's going to happen predictably. My own bet, and this is a bet, it's speculation, is that we're not actually going to see uh, a significant financial reform in this congressional session. I think the risks are too mm-hmm. high for blowing up in Republicans' faces the closer we get to the 2018 midterm. Um, and uh, there are too many moving parts uh, within the Republican coalition to make that move quickly. Well, part of that uh, has to be the fact that, that in terms of the, the, the lineup of things that they have on their plate, as we obviously know, health care is right there, yep. and tax reform. So, yep. so those two are kind of jumping ahead of the regulatory reform. Yeah, it's exactly, exactly correct. Uh, Barack Obama is a, is a very useful antecedent here because you know, he's elected in 2008 with majorities, even bigger majorities in the Senate. Uh, and and House uh, in 2008. And in that congressional session, we had several small pieces of legislation, but the two blockbusters were health care and financial reform. Right. They had huge majorities. It was still cumbersome. It was still time-consuming. Yeah. The idea that we're going to see tax reform, we're going to see health care reform, we're going to see immigration reform, we're in going to see in- infrastructure reform, and then we're going to see financial reform in a single session with a presidency that is as as uh, kind of scandal prone as this one is, I think is is fantasy. And I think the closer we get to that election, then the less likely you're going to see Republican members of either house, uh, uh, the Senate or the or the House, uh, on board with an idea that uh, will put such a big target on their backs from the thumb of the Democrats. I was going to say it makes it that much harder to be able for politicians to be able to kind of chart that path because of all of this stuff that's going on right now. Exactly right. We're talking with Peter Connie Brown. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Or if you can't get to the phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Great to have uh, Peter in studio. I, I guess then because of the fact that, uh, th- that Dodd-Frank has had an impact over the last few years, uh, what are the elements of it that, that really need to to be in there that, that need to stay no matter what happens with the, with the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. So that's entirely a question of one's uh, political posture toward financial reform. My prediction of things that will stay is that we will still have a financial stability oversight council. Um, we will still have some kind of financial protection uh, bureau um, that, that survives. And those are two of the biggest innovations. Yeah. Um, We'll have some kind of uh, stress testing, which is the uh, legislative overhaul to how bank supervision is conducted. That'll exist in some form. But after that, I'm not confident of anything. So some of the other big (laughs) changes are um, exactly what form any of those things will take. Uh, I think that their authorities will be curtailed. Uh, Whether the regulators will be in charge of of dissolving and resolving failed uh, very large banks very open question. That's a jump ball. 
that's a Dodd-Frank innovation. Not clear that it's going to survive. It might be turned over to the bankruptcy uh, courts to handle, which is exactly what happened with Lehman. Republicans recognized that Lehman was a disaster. Yeah. They'd change the way the bankruptcy of large banks would occur. But it would essentially be uh, based on the Lehman model, not on the new model created by Dodd-Frank. Uh, and, and, uh, oh, and one other thing that's very important, is, that's uh, very likely to stay the same, is the overhaul of the way that derivatives are regulated right. yeah. and especially how they're traded yeah. uh, with centralized clearing and, uh, uh, and the like. I think that's here to stay. But we got, we got about a minute left. I just want to go back to, uh, for one second, the fact that there is some sort of recognition that a consumer protection agency, whatever that, that entity may be, whether it's the CFPB or or whatever this uh, this potential new entity would be, that at least is is seemingly an understanding by this administration that there does need to be some sort of element. There was talk, you know, a little while ago that it may be just gone altogether. Oh, sure. And that is the wish of a lot of people. Um, but I think that the chances of that are virtually zero. Uh, what we'll see, if anything, and I would not put money on anything, frankly. Uh, right is that we'll change its functions and we'll change its maybe we'll change the way that it's funded right now it's funded through the fed not through congress maybe we'll change its authorities but otherwise uh, i think that uh, it's here to stay and the benefit to the banks in general is uh they want to be freer from a well, lot of this yeah. uh, compliance regulatory costs uh that's that and that's where some of the banks are aiming their reform efforts but some of the banks are very happy with some aspects of dodd frank so uh, that is another aspect of a wild card. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.